thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing abdominal pain in children, episode two, common causes. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Jamie Thomas, still here, PT fellow in emergency medicine, and uh, my once again the best pediatrician in the world, Dr. Colin Gilhooley, has come down uh, to join me. <laughs> not sure many people would agree, but I'll, I'll take it. Would your wife agree? No. No, fair enough. Anyway, uh, to once again discuss abdominal pain in children, but this is the second episode, and we're going to be looking at the more common, less serious causes. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, that makes sense, yeah? Yeah. Um, so in the first episode, we looked at the, these eumonotomals. You must not miss. These are time critical. These patients may need surgery, yeah. at least surgical review. Not so much here, but we still need to be aware of these, and these are actually more likely to be seen day to day. Yeah, so these are the things that you're going to see. Uh, common things are common. Exactly. So it's that whole, um, when you hear hoofs, don't think separate. Think horses. Indeed. Brilliant. Okay, Nicole, so shall we crack on then? So yeah. What do you want to talk about first? Well, I guess starting with the thing that we're probably most likely to see in the emergency department, which is probably gastroenteritis. So mm. weather cools down, everyone stays inside, pass their germs about. One child's got a vomiting bug at nursery, they've all got a vomiting bug at nursery. They're very good at spreading germs, aren't they, kids? Yeah, they sure are, and we need to uh, take our hand washing policy out to the right. <laughs> Uh, get our infection control nurses into the nurseries. That's what we need. So, you know, these children are going to present with maybe some abdominal pain, but they'll have things to go alongside it. So that might be fever, uh, diffuse abdominal tenderness, diarrhea, maybe some vomiting. And it's important in the history just to make sure that you, you get this right and that you're not missing anything else, I guess, is the thing with that. Um, so may present with vomiting for the first one to two days and with some abdominal pain, maybe some fever, and then some diarrhoea after that. Vomiting might not be a symptom, it might just be diarrhoea. reason I mentioned make sure you're not missing something, a child who vomits for a week, has no diarrhoea, no abdominal pain, that would be an unusual presentation of gastroenteritis, to have evidence that's making them sick, but no, nothing that's uh, giving them any other symptoms sure. whatsoever. So just, just double-checking your history. Uh, but it is obviously very... Common, it's more common in the winter months, as I say, when people are in closer contact, um, and um, treatment is obviously uh, supportive, uh, largely. Most of these are viral in nature. Occasionally, there may be some blood in the stool, which you can ask about. It's worth asking about foreign travel, just in case there's increased risk of it being bacterial. And if that's a concern, you can take a stool sample. Um, but you've obviously got that catch-22 when using antibiotics in this age group, because most of the bacteria um, produce endotoxins, and if you give them uh, antibiotics, you kill all the bacteria, they release all of their endotoxin all at once, and the diarrhoea becomes significantly worse, and it's likely to be a self-limiting infection. Anyway, so supportive treatment uh, with fluids. Uh, in the emergency department, we start by doing a fluid challenge. Uh, ours is to give five mils of diarrhea every five minutes uh, for a concerted period uh, to show that the child is able to tolerate small amounts of fluid regularly and show that they'd be able to keep themselves hydrated at home if parents took a similar approach. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, if that fails, then they may need to be admitted uh, for further periods of observation. Uh, and if they needed support with fluid intake, 
their range would determine whether you maybe used an NG tube uh, or gave them IV fluids. Mm. Obviously, uh, we like NG tubes because the um, the gut is much better at regulating uh, electrolyte balance uh, than we are. Um, and but the problem with that is obviously if they have significant diarrhoea, you may perpetuate the cycle, which may be just some time to have a break. Uh, of note, post uh, significant. GI infections, so gastroenteritis in children, they can become lactose intolerant. Okay, so they lose the top layer of their villi, um, then they lose all the enzymes that sit in that nice area to break down lactulose so it can be absorbed into the system. Uh, and as a result, uh, anytime they have uh, lactose, milk, uh, milk, dairy products, yeah. exactly, their diarrhea worsens and that can last for a prolonged period, maybe six to eight weeks. So there's two choices there, you either put up with that six to eight weeks and it will get better with time or you take it out of the diet for that period and then you can reintroduce it at a later date. Yeah, I guess that's all about gastroenteritis, which is common um, and fat sap, something which we do see in the emergency department uh, fairly regularly as a constipation. The opposite. Indeed, quite the opposite. So this is incredibly common in children at one point or another during their, um, during their paediatric careers. Um, and um, it's often worse following an, a recent illness where maybe they've not drank quite as much so the stools become slightly harder and the pains become worse. Um, and so in this one, uh, the key thing again is to get a good history. Yeah. Are they struggling to pass stools? Is it painful when they try and pass stools? What are the stools like when they pass them? So go through that Bristol stool chart from one to seven and see if they're passing things that look like pellets uh, or rabbit droppings as opposed to that nice tight poor sausage stool that we all we all love so much we all uh, yearn for topic. Oh, I love it come on and talk about poo <laughs> um, obviously there's a, there's a new podcast idea isn't it <laughs> yeah sorry um, I guess from that point of view when you're thinking about examining them just double check that there aren't any other features uh, that sure. may suggest an obstruction uh, so make sure the abdomen is reasonably soft um, they may have a generalised tenderness or something like to be a focal area tenderness. Can you feel a bit of faecal loading in the left iliac fossa? Uh, and double check for bowel sounds. And then think about treatment options. So, Jamie, what do you think the treatment options are? Supportive. Supportive, excellent. And what might we do with that? <laughs> Increase oral fluids. Yeah. Look at diet, potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stool softeners. Stool softeners. And do you know what uh, nice guidelines are for the first line treatment of constipation in children? Is Movicol. Yeah, so Movicol sachets are the first line treatment for constipation in children. Not lactulose, not senna. Movicol. Okay, and that's what should be prescribed. Do they come in a nicer flavour for kids than they do for adults? They come in several flavours, Movicol, paediatric. They come in plain. Um, and then they come in various other flavours. You can mix them with... Um, with um, diluted juice or squash or whatever that okay. is instead. Ooh, yeah. Um, but yes, it's, um, that's the first line treatment and that should be treatment choice. If a child has significant constipation when they see you, so they're really struggling to pass stools or they've got overflow, then within the BNF you'll be able to find the disimpaction regime. Okay? Uh, so there's a mobile disimpaction regime for children who are fecally impacted, uh, which can be given and increased at home. Um, uh, of important note is when they start getting treatment, many people take it, start to have regular stools, and then they stop it again. They get constipated and again. And then they get constipated again. So it's important to give good advice to parents that they need to continue this for several months to ensure regular stool passage. 
for several months before they consider stop again. Um, it's not a particularly exciting diagnosis, but it is a common one that we see. And being good at managing it and giving good advice to parents is something which allows them to take control of it, allows them to improve it, um, and hopefully reduces uh, their need to seek further medical attention or advice down the line. Is it usually just things like their diet's not been particularly good, something like yeah, simple things like that? Yeah, diet, it? Uh, and as I say, recent illnesses are yeah. a lot of things to kind of just trigger it and set it off. Okay. Um, probably one of the key questions uh, when thinking of a diagnosis once the patient is to double check that they've had a normal bowel habit beforehand, so they've gone from normal to constipated. If they've had a con if they've been constipated right from birth, then you just need to think: is there actually the potential for an underlying dose of diagnosis here? And one of those worrying ones that we talked about in the previous podcast, Hirschfeld, is one that comes to mind in terms of a child who's never had a normal bowel habit. Mm. Giving them like a cold probably not be very doesn't nice. No, doesn't help them very much because they've still got a bit of gut that's not innovated, but now you're trying to force things through a bit faster. So it's just going to build up and build up, and it's going to be incredibly painful. Okay, so that's constipation. What's next? Um, so I guess the most common thing we've probably seen children in the emergency department viral illnesses. Mm. Those viral illnesses that don't necessarily cause gastroenteritis, but that may cause fevers or throats, rising illnesses, coughs. Most of those in children appear to be, it appears that abdominal pain is a common feature of them all and there have been uh, some slight reviews of studies and um, looking back at these and showing that actually abdominal pain in children is fairly common at times when they have just simple viral illnesses. Okay. So it's just part of the whole body response? Yeah, part of the whole body response and against moving on from them just having some generalised abdominal pain is, is mesenteric adenitis. Um, so that's obviously an inflammatory condition when a mesenteric lymph node within the abdomen uh, become inflamed and become painful. Um, those nodes are normally in the right iliac fossa or the right lower quadrant for sure. And so it can mimic appendicitis in nature. Um, but often the abdominal pain is actually more generalised uh, than being there. And so it is uh, quite challenging. Mm. Um, obviously if there's significant concern about appendicitis, then manage it according to that. Um, but I think there was a review where they looked at um, children who had an ultrasound for query appendicitis, which is something that uh, some places do quite routinely. And I think 16% of those were found to have mesenteric adenitis. Okay. Diagnosis. So sizable. Yeah, exactly. And if you think that some of those would have been diagnosed, others would have been diagnosed without going down the, the appendicitis pathway mm. as well. Uh, and that's just reactive then, mesenteric adenitis? Yeah, it's just a reactive uh, lymph adenitis uh, set all without any intervention. It just needs good analgesia control, mm. advice and a bit of time to get better. Does it, and it could happen again? So counselling? It can happen again, but it's not something that um, is often... Yeah. Certainly not something that I've seen children recurrently presenting with mesenteric adenitis when they're well. Okay. Um, and I guess other things, so mesenteric adenitis is often associated with more significant uh, infections. So one of the ones that's uh, reasonably common would be group A strep of uh, the throat, so a pharyngitis, a tonsillitis of group A strep, uh, which in its own right is also associated with abdominal pain. So again, uh, another group did an observational series looking at children presenting to the emergency department with group A strep, pharyngitis, tonsillitis, uh, and found that um, um, a large proportion of those had had abdominal pain. Okay. 
So, um, so you're taking your whole systems review here, aren't you? Yeah. Is there anything else that's been going on? Any yeah. pre any preceding symptoms before this actually happening? Absolutely. Is it actually the primary problem? Yeah, and I think um, um, good practice in children is to make sure you do ask all those questions and do a good systems review, and your clinical examination needs to reflect that as well. Yeah, so ENT examination should be done uh, in all children presenting. Uh, with illnesses, I'm not sure you need to do it if they've sprained their ankle. Um, but presenting with illness, I think it's important that they all have an ENT examination. I was an ENT nightmare as a little child, um, so yeah, I can vouch for that. So you've grown now, and now you're just a complete nightmare. Now I'm just sort of a medical nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so anything else we're looking for under our common well, common the things are common. I guess the other thing. Uh, is to think about is urinary tract infections. Ah, uh, yes. Fairly common in children. Yeah. Uh, and they present with abdominal pain and fever. Pretty mm. much how they present with in adults. I yeah. I would say. It's interesting. It's the two spec. It's the, it's the two age ranges. You know, the the, the the two extremes. And then our age, we don't seem. To, it doesn't seem to be so common. No. And I think uh, it's another thing that you know, when you see it in a in a, a younger child, so an infant, a baby, um, period. Um, when they're presenting unwell and settled, maybe thought to have some abdominal pain or, or maybe plus minus a fever and you get a urinary tract infection, it's important to note in that age group you need to consider whether there could be any renal anomaly. Yeah. And so uh, there's a nice guidelines for the management of UTIs, uh, which gives good advice on which patient should be followed up in terms of the need for uh, further imaging, mm. uh, depending on their age and the type of organism. So. If there's any concerns about that, it's worth uh, looking up and looking at the table there. Mm. Um, as children become older, um, the incidence of UTIs does fall, mm. uh, assuming they haven't got any underlying anatomical problems. Um, but again, they're going to present in the same way, vomiting, poor feeding, fever and abdominal pain. Mm. Um, once they are able to converse a little bit more, so after the age of five, they might be able to give you more specific uh, symptoms of dysuria yeah. and frequency and those kind of things. But prior to that, it's quite difficult and challenging. Uh, and UTI should be managed as per your local guidelines. Mm -hmm. We have a very specific guideline for which antibiotics to give, sure. depending on uh, age uh, of the child. We always go for a clean catch. Go for a clean catch. Yeah, so we take the nappy off, uh, take a sterile pot and ask parents to catch it. So we make sure we've got uh, a sterile, hopefully midstream urine. Um, because obviously if we dip a nappy it's likely to be dead. Well, this is a, yeah. Um, and so we always go for a clean cap. Just on that, there was a, a trial done uh, at Melbourne Children's Hospital called Quickwe, uh, because obviously uh, sitting and waiting for a child to have, have a wee uh, can be a very long process. Like London buses. Exactly, exactly. And you get so bored that you end up missing it because you're not paying attention. Uh, so they looked at just rubbing cold water on the lower abdomen for five minutes in a circular motion to see if it would increase the likelihood of having children wait. Turns out it does. It does it. It works. It does. Um, it's not foolproof by any means, but uh, it increased wow. the time and the number that they got uh, immediately following it. Wow. Um, so something for for everyone to think about. Is that, that going to be your quality improvement project? <laughs> uh, I think it would be. It's, a, it's an interesting one to see if... Uh, uh, if it would work here as well, which it should do, there's no reason that it yeah. shouldn't, but um, something just to think about on another yeah. note. Okay. And I guess there, probably, there may be kind of common causes of abdominal pain, constipation, gastroenteritis, urinary tract infections, 
uh, upper respiratory tract infections, general viral illnesses, mesenteric adenitis. Uh, they are the most common causes of pain uh, in children. There are obviously a huge number of other ones out there that, that we could talk about, uh, including foreign body, but we kind of touched on that. Yeah, we touched a bit on that, yeah. And we, we talked about what was worrying about that and what wasn't. Um, and then there's obviously the non-abdominal causes, which we're going to come on to on a, on a separate podcast. Um, so we looked through a lot of common causes there. I think we've also got to think about one of the most common uh, abdominal pains you will see in, in neonates. Um, we talked a bit about colicky pain when it was yeah. to do with um, intersusception, but just colic by itself. Yeah, so um, I'm sure many parents out there uh, will be fully aware of um, colic and will probably have tried multiple different things to try and improve their child's colic with every parent having a different success story. Um, so colic by its name uh, is uh, children who present with irritability, crying and appear to have abdominal pain, so drawing the legs up towards their, their chest. Um, it appears to get better when they pass wind or open their bowels. They feed normally, um, they have no real other associated symptoms and have a completely normal exam. It's, it's incredibly difficult um, because there is no reliable treatment. So there's, there's lots of different things out Wives there. Wives' tales. Yeah. Exactly. And you always know there's no good treatment when there's lots of different options. Mm. Yeah? Because if one worked, that's the only one anyone would be using. So I think the key things about colic are is that the child is otherwise completely well. Child's feeding well, gaining weight, growing, and that with time, colic gets better. So most of the reviews that have been done by about 12 weeks of age, most children are settling down uh, from their, their symptoms of colic and having a regular bowel happen, habit. However, prior to that, it can be incredibly distressing for parents because they are sitting there trying to soothe and calm their newborn baby, and the baby is crying often for prolonged periods, appearing upset. And so it's important when you're seeing a child with this, you think about the potential serious diagnosis, you exclude them, and then you spend some time carefully talking to parents and explaining everything that you've done and why it's nothing to worry about, reassuring them about why um, you are able to say that there's nothing significantly wrong, um, and giving them some advice, okay? giving them reassurance that they're doing everything right. Okay? Um, because... Um, as parents out there will know, when you haven't slept for two weeks um, and your child is crying, it's distressing and it's hard work. And so taking some time to speak to these parents and reassure them and give them some, some support and help will go a long way uh, to helping with this. Obviously, you can talk about the different options available out there, Infocol um, and all other different things. I don't support any of them particularly. I don't think there's any good evidence that any of them work. And as I said, the natural history of colic is that it gets better with time. And I guess associated with that, when parents come in and talk to you about colic, they often talk about gastroesophageal reflux uh, in the newborn period. So gastroesophageal reflux is obviously uh, occurs because the esophageal sphincter, as it goes through the diaphragm, isn't very formed because the child's musculature isn't quite very well developed. So that allows the passage of milk back up into the esophagus, perhaps some stomach acid as well, which may be painful. Uh, it can be associated mainly with vomiting symptoms, 
they can be maybe associated with just pain symptoms uh, and there are various treatment options out there for this. I think the key things are that it's only a disease if the child is, is failing to gain weight. So if the child's otherwise gaining weight, doing well in between times, then the child is obviously getting enough nutrition in um, that it's not causing them uh, a significant problem. The natural history is again that it gets better with age, so the musculature improves, as children grow and develop they spend more time upright and most children by the age of 13 months will be walking and by 13 months you can be pretty sure that this, uh, all the signs and symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux will have resolved. It's incredibly difficult to treat, uh, the treatment options are ranitidine, uh, meprazole, uh, gaviscon, all of which have their side effects. So, Gaviscon obviously is a thickener, stops things coming up, but it's a thickener so it stops things getting through. Uh, so constipation can be a side effect as associated with that. Minitidine and omeprazole obviously reduce the pH in the, in the stomach um, and there's good evidence in adults about omeprazole and the fact that it increases your risk of, of other infections, I think pneumonia specifically, uh, and there's no reason to think that that wouldn't be true uh, in the neonatal population as well. Um, although I'm not sure the studies are quite there to support that as yet. Um, and certainly from my point of view in the emergency department, I am not keen to start any treatment for gastroesophageal reflux in a child who is otherwise thriving, so they're gaining weight uh, and have a completely normal clinical examination. I think discussing uh, and speaking to parents about the likely course of it, what's going to happen, and the history uh, of why it's occurring, uh, is more important and taking some time to go through that can often help to reassure them as well. Excellent. Um, so I think we've looked there really at the common causes. I think, is there anything else you wanted to say? No, I think that's probably done. Um, there's obviously a lot and there are obviously lots of other causes of abdominal pain but I think mm. they're the main ones that we see on a regular basis within the emergency department. Okay. So the first part of this trilogy, we tackled the, uh, the serious causes. We've now looked at the common in our second part, so that leaves our final part of the trilogy, uh, where we're going to look at the non-abdominal causes of abdominal pain. Absolutely. That was the Abdominal Pain uh, in Children, Episode 2, Common Causes podcast. Remember, you can find more information at uh, takeorally.com. You can also find takeorally on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, for more information on research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find Inuage Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.